couple of announcements. Let me just remind you again, if you weren't here at the beginning of our service, we will not have our evening service tonight. And uh, as until further notice, uh, we will forego Wednesday evening Bible study. We do admonish all of you to be careful, be safe, and still trust. Amen. But we, we want to uh, exercise good public habits as well as uh, every precaution that we can. So let's, let's be mindful of that. So no evening service, no Wednesday. We will resume um, Sunday morning, and we will continue to pray that by then we will have a better grasp of things. But until then, we want to be mindful of that. Also, uh, congratulations, Daryl and Naomi Lee. 40 years. What, what was the actual anniversary? 15th. Oh, so it is tomorrow or today? Today. So it is today. Amen. Happy 40th anniversary. Amen. And also, uh, because we won't have Wednesday, this may be the last time we get a chance to greet Brother Walt and Sister Sue, who have been with us these past few weeks and so we want to um, wish them well and pray God's safety on, upon them as they travel because they travel from South Dakota and they will be traveling cross-country, leaving possibly, might be able to coax them for another week uh, because they'll miss Wednesday. So they want to be here on Sunday, but uh, we want to uh, keep them in prayer. It's been a delight to have them with us. Amen. Our scripture this morning is taken from James chapter 1, and we will read verses 19 through the end of the chapter. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27, and let me just say right now, I haven't changed my text because of what's going on. So I'm preaching God's word as if it were yesterday, so amen. James 1, verses 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves." For if anyone is a hearer of the word and does not, uh, and, and not a doer, is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, but he looks at himself and goes away and does and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres being uh, bring a uh, being no hearer uh, who forgets his own uh, his own but a doer who acts he will be blessed in his doing if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart this person's religion is worthless religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. I think the important thing to begin with in looking at this passage, because oftentimes certain portions of it are extracted and just kind of taken and people run with it. So I think the important thing to remember as we look at this passage is that from the, at the very outset, is that James is assuming that the people that he is addressing are believers. So he is not giving us the means of salvation because some people look at this almost as the order of salvation where he talks about taking off filthiness and all, un, uh, all, all wayward uh, uh, and, and all wickedness and then receive the meek word of God or with humility receive the implanted word of God which is able to save your souls as if he is saying take this off so that you can be saved. So hold in mind that James is addressing those that he believes to be believers. It is encaptured in that phrase, beloved brothers. Uh, and so he is speaking to those or writing to those that he assumes to be believers. And because he assumes them to be believers, that means they are able to A, recognize the word of God, and B, they are able to respond to the word of God. Unbelievers are not able to recognize the word of God as the word of God, nor are they able to respond in faith to the word of God. So James is writing to believers. And so for this reason, as we said, this is not the ordo salutis where he is saying, take this off and then receive. I just read something in, in preparation for this and it was surprising that a preacher would say the only way that you could receive is if you got to take no that's James is not giving us the order of salvation now that being the case since he is assuming that he is addressing believers there are five things that we want to look at from this particular passage and the first one is this that being the case since James is assuming that he is referring to believers in this passage, James infers the very real possibility that genuine believers can be deceived. That real, genuine believers can be deceived. In verse 22, he says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And in verse 26, If anyone thinks uh, that he is religious and he does not bridle his tongue, he deceives himself. And that person, he says, their religion is worthless. Now, of course, Peter is a good example of this. Peter is a good example of how you can be self-deceived and no matter how strong the religion you hold to, the religious you practice in any given moment can be inconsistent with the religion that you cling to for the salvation of your soul. And as I said, Peter is an example of this twice. In the book of Acts, we are told that, that when the Lord came to Peter in a vision and he saw all of these unclean animals and Peter or all of the, 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 the animals that in the, according to the Mosaic law they weren't supposed to eat and Peter he was told to rise and eat. And Peter says, no, no, I cannot. You know I don't allow any unclean thing to pass my lips. And the Lord tells him in this vision, how dare you call anything that I've made unclean? 
And with that, he dispatches him to the house of Cornelius, where not only was Peter, according to his, even though he was a believer, and even though he's the one who preached the sermon on the day of Pentecost, in his practice, Peter was not only looking at food as being unclean, he also looked at certain humans as being unclean. And so therefore, Peter had been deceived deceived into thinking that there were distinctions among men that did not exist. This carries over, and so even after the conversion of the Apostle Paul, Peter, when, when he ministered among the, uh, the Galatians and the Gentiles that were there, Peter, in the presence of, of all, when, when none of the religious leaders were there, or the church leaders from Jerusalem weren't there, Peter was hanging out, eating hot dogs or whatever, just hanging out with the Gentiles and embracing them. And then as soon as the religious leaders came from, from Jerusalem, he wanted to have nothing to do with them. And then Peter, uh, Paul has to confront him. And Paul confronts him, and he calls him a hypocrite to his face. Why? Because it's possible for us to have sound doctrine. It's possible for us to embrace the truth of God in our minds, so much so the Lord could use someone like Peter to preach on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 souls be saved. But it's also possible for that same person to be deceived and deceived in such a way that the religion that they practice is inconsistent with the religion that they hold to for the salvation of their souls. So James infers not only that a genuine believer can be deceived, but he goes so far as to say that the religion that is practiced by the self-deceived Christian is worthless, which I think is a rather bold statement, that being the case, that leads us to a second thing, and that is it's worth noting how James uses the word religion. The word that he uses as religion in verses 26 and 27, religion and then religious, which is a derivative of the same word. The Greek, it's a Greek word that's translated and it simply means the ceremonial observances and rituals that are associated with worship. Ceremonial observances and rituals associated with worship. Now, I know it's been commonplace among evangelicals, cutting-edge Christians or whatever, to reach the point to say, well, you know, Christianity is not a religion. Re Christianity is a, a relationship. And I remember this even as a young Christian, as, excuse me, we're being trained to evangelize, to do evangelism. And one of the things that we pointed out in one of the tracts that we were given is that religion is when men reach up to God. And Christianity is God reaching down to man. Well, here's what's meant by religion. Ceremonial observances and rituals associated with worship so contrary to what some may think or wish, Christianity is a religion. Because in Christianity, it includes ceremonies and it includes rituals that are a part of our worship of the triune God. 
In fact, the rituals and ceremonies are prescribed by God himself or are shaped according to what God himself has revealed. Uh, Wednesday, we touched on a statement that Bob Godfrey often has, has, has made a, a very profound point, and that is when it comes to idolatry. Idolatry consists of either worshiping the wrong God or worshiping the right God in the wrong way. So in that sense, religion, Christianity, is a religion because it includes ceremony. It includes rituals. And no matter how cool and cutting edge we try to get, if we extract from Christianity any concept of rituals or ceremonies that have been prescribed by God, we gut it from being religious at all or even Christian. So understand that religion is not a bad thing. Now, there are bad religions, but religion in and of itself is not a bad thing. Rituals are not a bad thing. Ceremonies are not a bad thing. They can be taken to a wrong degree. They can be used in the wrong way. But brothers and sisters, we've tried rules, ritual-free Christianity, and it doesn't come out as Christianity. Here's the point. The problem that James seems to be taking on here is not rituals. It's not the, it's not the misconception that the, Christ, that, that, that the Christian religion is all about the performance of rituals and ceremonies. In the context of what James is addressing here, what he's dealing with is an idea where the rituals and ceremonies performed within Christianity are ends in themselves. In other words, that he seems to be taking on the idea that the, of the misconception that the Christian religion is all about performance and rituals in the context of worship. In fact, he infers in verse 27 that rituals and ceremonies in, wor in the worship of God should result in service towards other image bearers of God. And his point is that if you have a religion, because essentially when our, our rituals and our ceremonies, whatever they may be, is all about us being connected vertically with God. And that seems to be the issue that James is taking on here. Yes, we do have rituals, we do have ceremonies and observances that, are, that demonstrate our being connected vertically with God. But James is saying, is that vertical connection, in other words, your moment with God, is not what the Christian religion is about. If you have all of this vertical connectivity and are disrespectful and disregarding of your brothers and sisters or your neighbors, so in other words, if you are vertically connected, it means you are also horizontally connected. And what James is talking about here is not whether or not Christianity is a religion. But he's saying the kind of Christianity or whatever thing that you want to call it, whatever religion that connects you vertically, in other words, it's not about you getting your praise on. 
If we get our praise on and then still get our curse on when it comes to our neighbors, then James says that's a worthless religion. I remember reading the um, biography of, of Frederick Douglass and when he was a young boy and he was a slave, his master, the one that owned him, was not a Christian. And then, of course, uh, they would, t- would take the slaves and give them a certain brand of religion. And so Frederick Douglass knew enough that Christianity ought to change a person. So eventually he, when his master became a Christian, he thought that he might get better treatment from his master. One of the things that caused Frederick Douglass to turn away from the church is that when his master became saved, became a Christian, he became even worse in his treatment of those that were in his employ. The point that James is making here is no matter what your religion or religious service is, even if you go to the right church and hear the right things, and he's assuming that they are, that they're hearing the right things, that they're doing the right things. They, 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 they have the right creed in place. They serve the Lord's Supper every service and it's wine. You know, maybe they're doing all of that. But he says, if what you're doing still allows you to overlook your image bearers, then first off, you've deceived yourself. And secondly, your religion is worthless. And so he's not concerned here about saying that Christianity is not a religion. But he is saying that anyone who thinks the services and the observances of Christian worship allows you to still uh, deny or walk past your fellow image bearers' needs, then that itself is a worthless religion. Because the religious, the Christian religion is about being connected both vertically and horizontally. And whatever your creed is, if it allows you to look at the suffering and the misfortune of others and not be connected to it, if it allows you, and he'll go on to argue later in chapter 3, if it allows you to curse your neighbor, if it allows you to be disrespectful of those who are in need, then that's a bad religion because you've deceived yourself into thinking that your rituals are enough. That brings us to a third consideration. In verse 19, James admonishes his readers to be quick to hear and slow to speak. And then he adds, and slow to anger. Now, we don't know the immediate context in which he's addressing this. Is he talking about what should take place in a worship, in the gathering of God's people for worship, and possibly? Or is he talking about just in in general that we should be quick to hear the word of God in terms of of reading it and before we speak or before we act? But if we look at it more broadly or if we look at it beginning in the context of worship, what James is addressing here is something that is very important and that is when God's people gather, there ought to be a priority given to the hearing of God's word. That the priority is not about, it's not about our time and our testifying time. When you've, you've had six days to speak. <laughs> you've had six days. And when we gather, 
he says, be slow to speak. And you need to be quick to listen. And the assumption is that God's people need to hear from God through the ministry of his word. What are we listening to? We are hearing God's word. I was just sharing with a brother, or a brother was sharing with, sharing with me. I had talked about how um, I had made a comment in a, in a conference years ago about the importance of, our, of, of God's word in our gathering rather than the time for quote-unquote personal testimonies. And so he testified to the fact, yeah, I, I tried to get that across to our people, and he had ministered in a couple places. There was someone had asked him, like, you know, Lord, uh, Pastor, can we have time for personal testimony? It was like, you have all week for, pe- for personal testimony. Call somebody. Talk to somebody. But our personal testimony doesn't save anyone. When God's people gather, it's time to listen. And we do a whole lot of talking that hasn't been influenced with healthy hearing. And so James says that when we gather together, or he assumes that when we gather together, we ought to be slow to speak. That should, be even, that should even be reflected in the hymns that we sing. The hymns that we sing ought not to center just on what I think about him. But the hymns that we sing ought to reflect what he said to and what he has said about us. Or what he's revealed about himself. We need to be slow to speak. We, there is a time to speak. But he says we ought to be slow to speak, but yet he also says we should be quick to hear. And I think what he means when he says that we need to be quick to hear, it is the hearing of God's word. And what we need to hear when we gather and we need to be quick to hear is the hearing of God's word of law. We need to hear God's word of law. And the reason we need to hear God's word of law, because that's what reveals what James alludes to in verse 21. That's what reveals the filthiness. That's what reveals the rampant wickedness that still clings to us. When we gather into God's place with God's people and the word is opened up, we have been affirmed by all of the upvotes in our our in our social media, on stuff that we have posted. When we, when we put out there what we did in that situation, we have been affirmed. And when we gather and hear God's word, we need to be reminded of what filth is and where filth resides. We need to be reminded that in and of ourselves that we have no good of our own. Our thoughts need to be exposed. Our affections need to be exposed. That's why James talks the way he does. Remember, he's speaking to believers. And so in verse 21, he tells them to lay aside. How can we lay aside, how can we lay aside uh, filthiness and wickedness unless it's revealed? And that's what God's law does. It reveals to us the rampant wickedness. And also when when man's word is prioritized over the word of God, it is the will and the passion of fallen men that sets the agenda for all of our doings. 
I think that's the point that he's making in verse 19 when he says, uh, Know this, my beloved uh, brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. And then notice what follows, and slow to anger. And the, the implication is that our words reflect our passions. And if our passion directs our agenda, look at what follows in verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The implication being that when we gather, we need to hear God's word. We need to put a priority on hearing God's word so that we are not driven by our own passions so that we are not so that we are not quick to therefore uh, uh, dismiss our own sins and one of the statements that I like in Romans chapter 7 when when Paul talks about the word of God he says that that the law is good it is good it is holy and it's just and the reason we need to hear the law is so that we would know the exceeding sinfulness of sin in other words, brothers and sisters, those things in us that, we, that we're working on, you know, those things in us that we say, ah, well, that's just how I am, we need to see it as God sees it. And it's not until God's law has been opened up to us that we realize how insidious gossip is, that we realize how harmful and how, how repulsive affections that are contrary to God's law, how, how bad it really is. Well, I don't, and people say this, I don't care, I just tell the truth. Well, we ought to care. In all truth, it doesn't have to be spoken in ways that are hurtful. It's when God's law is opened up that we're able to see that even in regeneration, our affections are wayward. And if we do not love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our strength, and if we do not love our neighbor as ourselves, and we stand in our own merit, we're condemned. And the purpose of God's law for believers and unbelievers alike, one of the purposes of God's law is to knock that silly, self, self-righteous, smug smile off of our face because we somehow are convinced that we're better than someone else. Like the Pharisee who goes into the temple and prays. And, and, and he says, Lord, I, I thank you that I'm not what I, what I used to be. Thank you that I've learned how to tithe even off the money I find in the streets. And most of all, I thank you I'm better than that wretched Gentile over there. And the Gentile, having been convinced by God's law, could not so much as lift up his eyes, but with, with bowed knee and, and a bent head, he says, Lord, have mercy on a sinner such as I. Brothers and sisters, we need a regular dose of God's law to show us what we really are and why we really need the Savior. You see, Jesus doesn't come to, to help us with our plans. Jesus hasn't come to be anybody's co-pilot 
and he certainly hasn't come to be your cheerleader and your coach. The only reason Jesus became flesh is because of how repulsive you are, how repulsive all of us are, and how unable we are to get anywhere close to being what we're supposed to be. And so therefore, he came in the flesh. And we need to give priority to the hearing of God's word so that we can hear what we really are. But here's a fourth thing. Prioritizing the hearing of God's word also includes hearing God's word of grace in the gospel. We need to be made low. We need to be leveled. We need to see our own filth. We need to see our own wickedness. We need to see the consequences and the, the full extent of any thought that is contrary to the will of God. We need all of that. But we also need to hear God's word of pardon, God's word of grace, or God's word of gospel. In verse 20, James says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And that phrase, the righteousness of God, was a, was a pivotal point in shaping Martin Luther's theology. Martin Luther, in reading that, that statement from the book of Romans, wanted to know what is the righteousness of God? What, is, what does the writer mean when he refers to the righteousness of God here? Is he referring to God's own personal righteousness? That, or is, is that what he's alluding to, his own holy character? Or is he referring to the righteousness that God requires? In other words, the essence of the law. And as he studied the scriptures, Luther realized the third category. That the gospel is the announcement of the righteousness that God gives. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul puts it this way. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the just shall live by their faith. And so when James says that the anger of man or the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, the question has to be asked or raised, what then does produce the righteousness of God? Well, the righteous, what produces the righteousness of God is the grace of God. It is the hearing of God's word of grace that puts us really, not just, not only does it gives us or imputes to us or announces to us that the righteousness of Christ is credited or imputed to us, but the righteousness that is imputed to us puts us in a different relationship with the law. Notice that Paul or that James here takes, shows us in verse 25 where he refers to looking into the law as, the, as looking into the perfect law, and notice this, of liberty. The law of liberty. How does the law become a place of liberty? 
It's because in the gospel, the demands of the law are met. And in the gospel, the penalty for failure of the law has been met. So now the sting of the law is removed. And we can now go to the law and instead of seeing an accusing finger, even as our guilt is laid out before us, what we see in the law is the beauty of holiness. We are set free from the condemnation of sin so that we can see in the law as Paul describes it in Romans 7 as being holy, just, and good. We don't see the accusing finger of the tutor when we come to the law wrapped in the gospel. So we need to hear the law as it reveals our sin. But because he's talking to believers, we need the gospel that announces the righteousness of God given to us, by, uh, given to us in Christ by faith. But we also now are able to go back to the law, not empty-handed. But we go back to the law with Jesus intact. I've told the story before about uh, when I was about six years old and walking down the street, going to the grocery store. My parents had sent me to the store to go get something, a little corner store. And we were living on a busy street in Los Angeles. And I get halfway down the block, a, a bully about 10 years old, comes down and he sees me knowing that I'm headed to the store and asks for the money. And I give him the money. And I go back home where my 19-year-old uncle is. And I come in crying and he says, what's the matter? And I told him what happened. He says, come on, let's go. And the more we got, the closer we got to the house, my heart is building up. Yeah, now the bully's going to get it. We get to the house, and the bully's still standing there on the porch. And my uncle says, now go get your money. And I'm like, what did I bring you for, you know? <laughs> I'm not thinking that a 19-year-old has no business going over to mess with a 10-year-old. I'm just thinking, I brought you here. You're my muscle. You're supposed to handle this. And he says, go get your money. And I look at the... At the, at the bully, and I look back at my uncle, and he says, or else, say no more. I went up to the bully, and I'm so intimidated by the presence of my uncle that I don't even ask for the money. I just let, let into him. I just, just hauled off and just whacked him one. I didn't even ask, where's my money? I just lit into him. I just did what I, and then finally my uncle had to, hey, 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 you know, just get your money. You, you're good. You know, you, you, you're, you're good. You, you got your money back. Brothers and sisters, here's what I'm saying. When we talk about a third use of the law, the misconception that a lot of people have is that first the law convicts us of sin. And then the law announces the forgiveness of God. And then we are now able to go back to the law. But the problem that we usually have with that is we say now the law is the means by which we are sanctified. No, the law is not the means by which we've been sanctified. The law 
is now removed. The threat of the law is now removed so that we can go to it and not face the accusing finger of the bully. Because now we have someone with us. We have the spirit dwelling in us and we have the righteousness of Christ standing beside us so we can be better. We can do better. Not because we are driven by the law, but because we've been set free in the gospel. And so now we can face what we couldn't face because our big brother is with us. And we can, we can go to the law hearing the words of Paul in Romans 8. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. And the law is going to tell you, yeah, but you know, yeah, but no condemnation. Because our big brother is with us. And all of the condemnation that is due to us is born in his wounds on our behalf. And that's why Paul could say later in Romans 8, who can bring, bring any charge against God's elect? So now the law, as we are covered in the grace of God, the law is now a place of liberty where we get to live out our obedience to God out of gratitude for what he's given us in Christ. Well, that leads us to a fifth and final thing. It's in this spirit that James says in verse 23, Therefore be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, which is self-deception. Let me explain what that does not mean. That does not mean that, A, now that we have heard the word, we live the gospel. If you've not heard me say this before, then you're about to hear me say it now. If, you've had, if you have heard me say it before, then nod and agree that, yeah, that you said it before, and that is this. You do not live the gospel. The gospel is an announcement. It is the announcement of someone else who did live who lived for our righteousness, died for our sins, raised for our justification, and is seated right now in heavenly places. What we do is live in light of the gospel. The gospel, the knowledge of what God has done for us in the person and work of Christ is the means by which we are empowered and impelled to live to the glory of the Father. So what does it mean to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only? It's the exact same thing that James is repudiating later when he talks about worthless religion based on self-deception. In other words, here's what it means to be a doer of the word. If you know you've been set free from the bondage of sin, if you know that condemnation has been passed, then live like free people. People who have been freed by the power of God for the purposes of glorifying God. In other words, brothers and sisters... You've been set free from the mode of looking at others the way the world looks at him. As a matter of fact, what James goes on to talk about at the end of verse 27, when he talks about what pure and undefiled religion is, it's not only visiting the orphans and the widows, 
but it's keeping oneself unstained from the world. In other words, brothers and sisters, you don't receive your marching orders from your news feed of how you are to look at your neighbors. You don't allow any political platform or party to allow you to otherize someone else who has been created in the image of God. You don't put people into the categories of their income or the neighborhoods they live in. You see all as being created in the image of God. And they're either our neighbors or our brothers and sisters. Here's what he means. Be hearers of the word so that you can be convinced of your sinfulness and be convinced of God's faithfulness in forgiving your sins. And now live in that light. Here's what it means to be doers of the word. It's seen in the reverse of a parable that Jesus gives of a servant who owed his master money and he couldn't pay it back. And then the master finds him out there and then he forgives the debt. And the master finds him just outside of the gate beating the tar out of somebody who owed him only a fraction of what he had been forgiven. And the master sees him and says, take him away and throw him in jail. Here's what it means to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. It means to hear the riches of God's grace and love that he loved you while you were yet an enemy. And he sent forth his son to live and to die for you. To live in that light is, not, is to not allow artificial barriers to come up between you and your neighbors. Living or doer of the word. Husbands, it means to, to see our wives not just as the world tells us, but as Christ sees his church. To live, to be a doer of the word. It's for wives to see themselves in the context of their husband, of their matrimonial role and responsibility in light of what it means to be under the loving care of a gracious Savior. Brothers and sisters, to be a doer of the word means to have the grace that we have received inform every aspect of our thinking and our doing. And it means to, to live in the light of the grace that we have received and the confidence that we are secure in everything the Father has given us in the Son so that loving is never losing and doing the right thing is never the wrong thing. And that even when we are tempted, we know that we are kept even in our seasons of temptation. He says, because otherwise, if you are a hearer and not only and not a doer, here's what he says, you'll deceive yourself. And brothers and sisters, the manifold nature of self-deception for those who do not know who they are in light of the gospel, not only is it neglecting our neighbors, but also it promotes wrong views of God. 
If, in other words, if we hear ourselves over the hearing of God's word of, of law and God's word of grace, and we speak instead of listening, then our conception of God will be like the, the, the servant that Jesus tells about in Matthew's gospel when he delivered all of these talents to the different servants and he gave one five and another one three and another one one. And the other first two with the five and the three, they took the talent or the money and they invested it and gave more back. And then the one who only had the one, he had buried it. And when the master wanted to give an account, he says, well, knowing that you were like this, therefore are buried. He says, you don't know me. You obviously don't know me. And brothers and sisters, many of us have delusions about God. And that's why we need to hear. There are some that are, that, that are now, right now, out of fellowship because they, they, they're waiting till they can get their lives together because they don't know God. They don't know him to the degree that they should. Because if you knew him, you would know you can't get yourself together. And there are some that are angry with God because of misconceptions that they have, that they have circulated or they have received about who God is and how he functions in this world. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because if you only hear, then you will deceive yourself. Live like you've been loved and live like you've been set free. Because the Father who speaks has saved your soul and he has implanted in your soul the ability to recognize and respond to his truth. And brothers and sisters, it is only in the pronouncement of God solidified by the blood of his son that can give hope to a sinful soul in the midst of a sinful world. Live not like you're trying to get in. Live like you are seated in heavenly places. Live like your life is hidden in Christ Jesus. And that's what it means to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. Amen.